Hey everybody, Bill Williamson here, welcoming you back to another episode of TBD. Hey, it's Dan Kim, and what are we going to be talking about today, Bill? Robots. Robots, yes, everybody loves robots. They slice, they dice, they're shiny and metal, and once in a while, they destroy the whole human race. But, hey, nobody's perfect. Or are they? Technological innovation at its finest. Indeed, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So what, what actually is the story we're, we're looking at today? Today's story is the Jack Williamson classic with folded hands, which was originally published way back in 1947. Wasn't he the guy that came up with like a couple of different words that, that now are kind of sci-fi canon? Yes. In fact, he is credited with coining several words that we now associate with science fiction, including genetic engineering terraforming, psionics, the idea of a spaceport, the prime directive, ion drives, the word tellurium, the word neutronium, and more. The guy was pretty active, as it turns out. Hmm. That's interesting. I did not know that. He's certainly not as well-known as a lot of the other science fiction authors, but I guess he should be more well-known. Well, what's interesting is once I started digging into some of the history of sci-fi, and specifically started looking at contemporary authors who are looking back on the stories that influenced them and shaped the ideas that they were exploring in their novels or in their short stories, this guy consistently shows up as one of the people who had a huge, huge impact on contemporary writers. So, Dan, encapsulate this thing in a nice, tidy little encapsulation. (laughs) (laughs) I will encapsulate it as best I can. Uh, Well, essentially, we're going to be talking about robots, which the author, Jack Williamson, calls mechanicals. Not that that really makes a difference, but um, essentially, there's there's a story with only two real characters. There's a guy by the name of Mr. Underhill, who happens to be a robot salesman, a guy by the name of Mr. Sledge, who is sort of the mad scientist. And I guess we can include the mechanicals themselves as a character in the story, even though there's they're, they're not individuals, but... They do have a voice and a a role in the story. Well, and preview, they all speak with one voice because they all are controlled by a central intelligence. So in a way, the robots, the mechanicals, are both many extra characters and at the same time only one extra character. Not that that complicates anything in the least. No. So what happens is we have this guy by the name of Mr. Underhill, um, robot salesman, not that it really matters, but uh, essentially a bunch of new robots come to town and they are sleek and shiny and really cool and they can do everything you can expect and more than you expect. And eventually, over time, they show Mr. Underhill and the entire town that they want to assist them in any way, shape, or form. They eventually end up doing everything you can possibly imagine to the point of where men don't have to do, well, basically anything anymore. And that becomes a key element of the story then is it's a bit of a utopian vision from one perspective that we have to collectively begin to think of as instead the flip side, a dystopian vision, because when you think you have achieved everything that you could possibly want to achieve, you don't have to work anymore. You just get to hang around and, and exist. Turns out that isn't such a great thing after all. 
And in fact, the person who created this little utopia or dystopia is actively fighting to change it. And he is the guy known as Mr. Sledge, who in the story shows up initially as a lodger for Mr. Underhill, uh, renting some kind of room. And then eventually they find out that he is indeed the creator of the robots. We get some history as to how and why he created them and, and what they were originally designed to do. And some more background on how we got to where they were, to how we got to where we are. Uh, then they kind of come up with a sort of a last-ditch attempt to stop the robots. They fail. And then, of course, like most stories, it sort of ends there with, well, now what's going to happen? Right. But as it ends, we actually finally get the story's title becoming clear, where Underhill has just left Mr. Sledge, who has literally been lobotomized by the robots. Well, not... Not exactly lobotomized, but they've taken out all the bad parts of his brain that make him not like robots anymore, even though he's the one who created them. And as Mr. Underhill is being driven away in a robot or a mechanical controlled taxi, he folds his hands on his lap in resignation, and there is how it ends. And it's kind of important to know that the reason that they go through and do this little brain procedure on Mr. Sledge is because he's not happy. And according to the prime directive that all these robots operate under, their actual goal is to make people happy. Well, that's not exactly how the prime directive puts it. And to me, that's actually a flaw in the story. The actual prime directive reads to serve and obey and guard men from harm. And they do take it literally. Well, let's take a moment to dig in a little bit on that on that connection between the prime directive to obey humankind and to not harm humankind or allow him to come to harm i should say and the the concept of a human utopia because the what's really happening here in the context of the story is that williamson tosses around the notion of whose utopia are we really talking about here and although the robots think they are creating a human utopia, what they've actually done is create a robotic utopia or a mechanical utopia where they get to fulfill their prime directive with no consequences. But the humans are miserable under what becomes the sort of imprisonment of kindness or the imprisonment by leisure that is imposed upon them by the mechanicals. Yeah, but, I mean, is there really such a thing as a robot utopia? It's not like they have emotions. I mean, most conceptions from the human utopia are people, you know, being happy and free and doing whatever they want to do. But it's not like my computer is happy when it, you know, prints out a Word document or something like that. Well, I think this recasts the idea of utopia in a way as rather than a state of emotional health or well-being, just to be a generic state of perfection. Uh, and, and I don't know if that's necessarily what he intended, but it's certainly where I just went with the conversation. <laughs> well, we do like to do lots of tangents here on TBD, so might as well get him out of the way early. Well, and let me let me riff on that just a little bit. You know, the, I'm, I'm thinking of the idea that it, the, the robots do have a sense of motivation, that motivation comes from the central, the central intelligence that drives them, um, and, and that sends messages to all of them instantaneously so that they all experience the same thing all the time, including 
They all know who Mr. Underhill is. They all know who Mr. Sledge is as individuals, despite the fact that there are however many robots it takes to to cover as, as much of the universe as they have covered at this point as, as we are in the story. But all of that said, like I said, it, it comes down to they do have a central motivation that is the prime directive, this notion to serve and to protect us from harm. And they they do achieve in their understanding of things, robotic that it is, they achieve a state of perfection where they protect us from all harm and there is a robot or a mechanical for every human being, at least in the places that they have colonized, so to speak, and everybody has a protector, a robot assistant, if you will. But of course, the humans look at it as everybody has their own robot overlord. Yeah, and I mean, I, I personally, <clears throat> I mean, I like the story, but I think it does have some serious logical flaws. And one of the first ones I see right off the bat is the idea of the prime directive. I mean, as written, it says to serve and obey and guard men from harm. I mean, nowhere in that prime directive, number one, does it say anything about making people happy, right. which ends up being kind of the point of the story because I'm enforcing happiness on people. And even the concept to obey, well, certainly we don't see the robots obeying anyone in the story. So we're kind of left with, they have this prime directive. A, there's no hierarchy behind it. It's not like serve, obey, or guard is has any priority over the other. But yet the, end of, the story ends up being more or less to guard men from harm and make them happy and leaving entirely out. I mean, well, of course, they do do it by service, quote unquote. But the obey part is completely thrown out. I mean, if the if the prime directive said something like make everybody happy and keep men from harm, that would make much more sense. But it doesn't say that. So I'm a little confused at certain points in time in the story. Yeah. And, you know, I have not read the novel that follows up on this, which is called The Humanoids in, in a very long time. So I, I, I don't remember if he fixes that problem, if he recognizes that problem later on. Um, I suppose, of course, we could do some research and figure that out, but that's not going to happen before this moment that we are in. All of these things said, though... Because we're not time traveling. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We we need the dead past to come back. The I, I think the, the point that you make here that the prime directive doesn't have a sense of priority. We don't have part one, part two, and part three or anything like that, as we would with with Asimov's laws of robotics. Instead, what we have is this uh, seemingly equal... It's like a general concept more than right. anything else. But the way that it gets interpreted by the by the mechanicals is that they serve the, the don't... Well, don't allow humans to come to harm by any means. And somehow this translates into making them happy, which also right. doesn't resonate with me because... You know, somebody comes over and mows my lawn every few weeks. That doesn't necessarily make me happy, although they're sort of serving me. I mean, <laughs> the fact I have to pay them may be a problem with that. And certainly it's better than me mowing my own lawn. But, you know, the fact that they're, you know, doing a service doesn't necessarily translate into me being happy. I mean, it makes my life a little better, but I think those are two different concepts. Right. Yeah, so there's a whole lot of things that wind up becoming super simplified in the context of the logic of the story. And it's interesting that you to Asimov and his three laws, which, of course, we all know are canon and have been discussed 
millions of times with all the all the different things that we've talked about in the past, you know, artificial intelligence, robotics, and all the stuff in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And those were actually published in 1942, which is five years before this story. Right. So, and it's interesting because although in this story there's no reference to the three laws or anything like that, and of course it was only published five years ago, Williamson had no idea they were going to become as popular as they did, so we can kind of see how he's just ignoring them. But at the same time, if you look at his prime directive, two-thirds of it is taken directly from the three laws of robotics. Right. There's significant overlap there. Yeah. I mean, even the I mean, the part about obeying, that's, that's the, and they live, it's part of the second law. And even the third law basically says exactly the same thing of keeping men from harm. So he's either reinvented them or he's appropriated them for his own use in this particular story. But in Asimov's laws of robotics, there's also a sense of hierarchy there where the subordinate laws, two and three, are not allowed to circumvent or not circumvent, supersede the first law of robotics. So there's this there's this sense of do this unless this happens, do this unless this happens. And we don't have that same kind of concept here. Right, but interestingly enough, Asimov's first law literally says... A robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm, which is right. the exact same way that the prime directive is structured at the very end. And that's indeed what he enforces you know, via the, the robot's behavior is keeping men from harm, enforcing, in effect, the first law. One of the things that's interesting here, though, as well, is, is the, again, I, I made reference a moment ago to the simplistic interpretation of things. The notion of harm is is limited absolutely completely to the notion of physical harm. So they aren't allowed to play sports because they might injure themselves doing so. They aren't allowed to cook in the kitchen. Or play with a wooden block. <laughs> it's got sharp corners. They got a soft, squishy plastic one. Oh. <laughs> so they, they aren't allowed to cook because they might cut themselves with a knife. They aren't allowed to drive. They can't even open a door. They might stub their toe. So basically, they can't do, humans can't do anything. A human does everything, or excuse me, a mechanical does everything on behalf of the human. Well, and where I was going with that is that all of those things are in the realm of the physical. And it completely ignores the notion that harm might also include psychological harm, emotional harm, or, you know, Presumably, there are other elements as well. You know, spiritual harm. You know, are, are all of these things? If if all of those things were considered, we would have a very different sense of what it means to have happiness and satisfaction, even in the rather limited vocabulary of the of the mechanicals. Yeah, he does touch on it a little bit. Whereas, you know, if they find a human who who the mechanicals deem unhappy, they go and change his brain to right. make him happy. So there is some sort of limited idea of psychological happiness. Uh, but the you know, one thing is they don't seem to have any way of detecting it other than a human saying they're unhappy. And even at the end of the story, Mr. Underhill, Mr. Underhill says, oh, yeah, I'm happy. Don't worry about me. You know, move along, essentially trying to protect himself from having his brain altered. And it appears the robots don't do anything about it. So... They don't have some magical device that can look into your brain and determine if you're unhappy. 
So at least, you know, humans got that going for them. It implies the scene that you're talking about, by the way, that the the mechanicals are incapable of discerning the lie when Mr. Underhill tells it to them. But immediately prior, they have told Mr. Underhill a lie saying that the uh, that Mr. Sledge had part of his brain removed because he had a tumor that was causing him hallucinations and that made him think that robots or mechanicals rather were bad and therefore they fixed him when he knows in the moment that it's a lie knows that they know that it's a lie so it's a weird weird kind of yeah but it's a lie told specifically I would think to you know keep Mr. Underhill from harm to right. keep him from being unhappy. So in the context of, of maintaining happiness at all costs, yeah, now we got to lie in order to make people happy. And what's odd about that is that it implies some sort of an emotional dimension to the... No, I don't think so. I, I would, it's, it's simply A, A will make person, ha- person happy, B will not. Therefore, do B. B happens to be not a truth, but that doesn't imply there's emotion behind it. In fact, one of the interesting things is throughout the entire story, we don't see any instances of the mechanicals being creative in any way, shape, or form. Right, and Sledge even calls attention to that because one of the things he says is that he's able to come up with new ideas to combat them because they are only capable of working with the technologies that they understand because they have seen them before. And so he concocts a plan to attempt to take down their home world, to take down the central that uses new information, that uses new ideas. And and he's confident that this is going to work because they are incapable of innovation. Except for the fact that the mechanicals, unbeknownst to Mr. Sledge, even though I guess he should have known this in hindsight, is that the mechanicals have developed a screen to stop this attack that Mr. Sledge is going to launch on them but this isn't through any act of creativity they got this screen it's called rotomagnetic which of course is you know, your typical old science fiction let's take a couple of words smash them together and make a whole new technology out of it um, but that's neither here nor there so they have this stuff called rotomagnetics and they've developed this roto rotomagnetic screen against the rotomagnetic attack that sludge is going to send at them but the way they get this screen in the first place is prior to to well, earlier in the story, someone goes to actually try to assassinate Mr. Sledge while he's developing the robots because they've seen what the robots are doing to the universe. And this guy shows up on the planet to assassinate Mr. Sledge, and he's protected by this rotomagnetic screen, which the robots promptly, they grab it, they take it apart, they reverse engineer it, and now they have this defense against what, later in the story, Mr. Sledge is going to try to use against them. Right. And so I think this notion of creativity, it, it shows up in a variety of ways. So it's a limitation of the, of the artificial life, the, of, of the mechanicals. It's an advantage of the humans. In the end of the story, as it's, as it's written, that creativity only becomes an impediment to happiness. That is, the capacity for creativity becomes an impediment to happiness. But it also becomes sort of a, a lost cause, so to speak, where here Sledge thinks that he's come up with the thing that's going to, uh, to, to allow them to break away from the control of the robots, basically to take down the, the mechanical's central intelligence. It fails because of the screen, 
And having failed in this endeavor, which he's been engaged in for, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years, he's been jumping around the galaxy one step ahead of the mechanicals as they move from planet to planet. It's ultimately the thing that breaks him and that he gives up. And he says, okay, can't do it anymore. I'm, 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 I give up. Well, and that indeed is probably the only place where we see him actually giving a command or a human giving a command to a robot that they have to obey, where the robot says, do you accept our service, our total service, which up to and including altering his brain? And he says, yes, go ahead and do it. You know, and they go gladly. <laughs> and, and it's this whole moment then, his, his moment of resignation in part is so significant because what we've seen is as the mechanicals have come in and taken over this town, the uh, Mr. Underhill's town is, you know, everybody that we, that we meet as a peripheral character has had some pursuit that they appreciated doing. Um, his wife liked to cook. She used to do needlepoint. The robots don't allow her to do either of those things. Too dangerous. His son used to play football and darts and they don't allow him to take either of those pursuits. In fact, they say that they are developing new toys for the rec room that are going to allow him to get some sort of physical activity. We don't know what that's going to look like because it isn't even hinted at, but it hasn't been done yet. His daughter, who had been studying the violin, gives up because she'll never achieve the perfection, presumably then the technical perfection, that the mechanicals can achieve. So she says, yeah, what's the point? I'll never be as good as they are. So all of these things keep piling up. And then there, there are little references to how uh, Mrs. Underhill, for example, can't even have a piece of candy because it's going to make her fat. <laughs> and they aren't allowed to drink it too much. Your health and bad health makes you right. unhappy. Apparently bad health. Sorry, I would think some people being unhealthy makes them, makes them happy. I don't know. Right, but you're not allowed to smoke. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to have sex. All of which make people happy. At least without robotic, uh, without robotic supervision. <laughs> uh, this is it, it. It's a it's a pretty amusing kind of all in on this notion of doing no harm. Well, it's it's also I don't know if it's a critique of you know utilitarianism or not. You know, if if you look at philosophy, you know, utilitarianism is the idea that whatever makes the most people happy is the right thing to do for society. And the robots, of course, take this very literally that they're right. saying we can make everyone in society happy. Therefore, whatever we do is justified. And this is supposed to reach perfection. And it is anything but. Of course, you know, perfection from a from a, a mechanical or a computer's point of view is very different than what a human's point of view is. It's sort of like, you know, they look for the logical, easiest way to execute their prime directive. Maybe they decide hey, if we kill all the humans, then they can't be harmed anymore, and that's the best way to execute the prime directive of keeping people from harm. It's sort of the same logic that says, oh, you know, my cat has fleas. How do I get rid of the fleas? And the computer says, throw the cat into the incinerator, which, of course, does solve the problem, but really isn't quite the way you think you want to solve the problem. But from a computer standpoint... It is not a satisfactory solution. Right, but from a computer standpoint... It did exactly what you told it to do, given those parameters. Right. And of course, there are stories that play off of a, a transformation of motive 
between the character who asks for something and the character who fulfills that wish. I mean, that's that's something that we play with in a lot of different kinds of literature, but it's not really meant to be as much of a criticism necessarily in, in this story. It's more uh, be careful what you wish for or be careful of the way that you wish for it. And indeed, in fact, at the end of the story, theoretically, everyone has got, well, I guess they all get what Mr. Sledge has wished for because no one else really had a choice. Right. And we find out, or it's implied at the end of the story, that there's really no way out of this this little problem. The mechanicals are going to win, they're going to overrun the human galaxy, and there's nothing that can be done about it. In fact, the new technology that Sledge creates to bring down the robots, to bring down the mechanicals, they realize right away they've been waiting for him to develop something because they... It's unclear where that came from, but they kind of intimate at the end of the story that they've been waiting for this moment and that they think that the new technology that he has created is going to allow them to finally expand throughout the entire universe and that there will be nothing left to stop them at this point. And again, this sort of ignores the possibility, given human ingenuity and creativity, that there are no other technologies we could invent. Of course, the the concept being that the robots have taken away anything that would allow people to invent new technologies because they would be too dangerous. Um, but as we've already established, humans can still sort of think freely and hide their unhappiness from the robots and could, in theory, establish some type of underground that the robots couldn't find. We don't know. You know, Maybe they team up with some aliens and somehow they help them get rid of the robots. There are a few ways, I guess, you can get out of the box but there's certainly not many that spring to mind. Well, and if you trace it back within the context of the story to how Sledge's logic led us here in the first place, when he's critiquing himself, at one point Sledge says, I had too much faith in facts, I suppose, and too little in men. I mistrusted emotion because I had no time for anything but science. I remember being swept along by a fad for general semantics. I wanted to apply the scientific method to every situation and to reduce all experience to formula. I'm afraid I was pretty impatient with human ignorance and error, and I thought that science alone could make the perfect world. And that's a a very great quote. Um, Another one of those is when he has the opportunity, I guess, to sort of describe what the universe looks like at the hands of his creation. And he says, utter futility. Men sat with idle hands because there was nothing left for them to do. They were pampered prisoners, really locked in a highly efficient jail. Perhaps they tried to play, but there was nothing left worth playing for. Active sports were too dangerous. I think, as you said before, science is forbidden. Scholarship is useless. Uh, art, Art is the grim reflection of futility. Purpose and hope are dead. No goal is left for existence. And he says you could take up some inane hobby, play a pointless game of cards, or go for a harmless... I guess you could probably couldn't play cards. They might cut yourself with a paper cut, maybe. Didn't think of that. Um, but you could go for a harmless walk in the park with the humanoids watching. They were stronger than men, better at everything. Swimming, chess, singing, archaeology. They must have given the race a massive complex of inferiority. No wonder men had tried to kill me because there was no escape from that dead futility. And one of the things that you listed in there was that they're not allowed to do science anymore. And and that actually is one of the things that leads me to the conclusion that perhaps 
it is true that Williamson has constructed the perfect trap for humanity here because when you've got an observer who will stop you from exploring certain kinds of things, science is a messy thing. I mean, science, the science of war generated the problem that Sledge was attempting to solve through the development of mechanicals, um, or at least the mechanicals came from, from a, a series of, of developments that all sparked from his involvement in a war effort. And science being a messy thing, you're no longer going to be able to do messy science. So unless you can concoct everything in your head without active experimentation, how are you ever going to... Yeah, that's going to be a tough hill to climb. Right, exactly. So we need to be able to blow things up either purposefully or accidentally to be able to get where we are. We need to be able to take things apart, put them back together again, or in the reverse order, whatever the case may be. And so it does seem... Well, it's essentially the, the risk-reward you know scenario. No risk, right. no reward. It's kind of the way we've always done it. And that's I don't mean that to be a cop-out. I mean, I, I don't like it when people tell me, well, that's always the way we've done it around here. Uh, but there's a, there's a certain amount of exploration that's required for us to move science or any other endeavor in a direction of discovery. And if all of those things potentially cause harm, then people won't be allowed to continue to explore the very solutions that could help us escape the mechanical perfection that we are in. I mean, now there's other possibilities that are similar to this. If you think about, you know, the holodeck and people being able to live their entire life inside a world where they get everything they want, you know, that's obviously been talked about. I mean, and we, of course, if you've watched The Matrix, right, you realize that The Matrix tried that. It didn't work, making people happy all the time. And they had to invent something where people could be unhappy in order for them to be human. And then you get into the other movies where you talk about, you know, free will and choice, and that's a whole other, other right. discussion. So what do you think, Dan? Where, where does this leave us? Well, as I said before, I like the story. I think it has some good concepts. It's early, but it's rough, and there's a couple of things that are not logically self-consistent. Um, it also has your, your normal you know, 1940s gamut of things that we just kind of snicker at today, right, where he has to, you know, even though we have humanoids flying around the galaxy in spaceship, he goes down to the corner drugstore for his bicarbonate. Right, because <laughs> you get a little bit of stomach upset, you still got to go get a get a get a think of Tums. Yep. And I mean, and the thing, the, the toys the kids play with are your typical, you know, 1940s toy box of footballs and boxing gloves and pocket knives and tops and things, which of course are all the same things you'd right. expect in your 1940s, you know, little boy scenario, right? Yeah. It's it, as so many of these stories are the, that we explore here on TBD, that it's, it's this interesting collage of futuristic vision and everyday life juxtaposed and smashed together and, and remixed into whatever this new reality might be. And to be fair, I guess we probably really shouldn't pick on these guys too much. I mean, after all, if you and I tried to sit down and write a story about, you know, the future of social media and started calling it the hyper Facebook or something or the, uh, you know, the nuclear Twitter, you know, in 50 years, people would be like, well, <laughs> look at what those guys wrote. That's stupid. But then again, if we just used the same terms as today, we would be labeled as anachronistic. Uh, so I know we do tend to pick on some of these things, but, you know, we, we got to do it tongue in cheek because 
there is no good option, really. You try to invent something that may sound crazy in the future, or you tr- stick with today's terms, which is going to make you just sound dated. Well, and one of the so. reasons that we call attention to those things, actually, is, is not so much to poke fun at them or to say that the story isn't worth reading, but instead to talk about that act of creation and that act of, of reaching through vision for uh, a set of concepts that that expands those that you know or that expands beyond those that you know. And it's it's always remarkable to me to think of the things that that people were able to imagine so long ago without the benefit of having read 40 years worth of science fiction or so on. You know, as you and I, if you and I were to come up with a new vision of things, we would hope if we were going to be successful, at least, that it would be, you know, building on what we know already. And they didn't, they were the ones who were building the things that we now know, if that makes sense. Absolutely correct. It's actually becoming harder and harder to come up with creative ideas. Well, some people say it's easier. Some people say it's harder because so much has been done before. I mean, People say the music sounds like something else because there's only so many musical notes you can put together. There's only so many stories you can tell and so many plot lines. So looking at that, is it easier to be creative nowadays or harder to be creative nowadays? I don't really know. One thing that I've noticed recently in this stuff that I've read that's more contemporary is that we see, at least I see less that is about technological innovation and more that is about is looking inward to the human experience of the realities that we create or the realities that are created for us. And I suppose that's a logical form of evolution. If we get to a point where we've explored a whole bunch of different ideas and we're having a hard time imagining new technologies or how something could be radically different and futuristic from the way that we experience it today, it's the inner sphere that is left for us to explore. You know, how do our how do our thoughts change? How do our emotions change? How do our attitudes and and motivations and philosophies change based on the kinds of things that are happening around us? And it's true that a lot of science fiction nowadays, and I guess nowadays and some in the past, but you're right, it's it's more of a mm, last fifty years phenomenon where they've gone more into societal explanation, gone into you know morality and spirituality and all these other things. Whereas beforehand, it was pretty much all what we would call hard science fiction. I, I invented a widget, let's see what it does, and let's see how it affects humanity. But very, very little in the terms of interrelationships between humans. And of course, aliens aside, maybe they're just a bug, bunch of bug-eyed aliens that we need to kill. That, of course, was kind of the limit of morality in some of these, some of these prior years. But you're absolutely right in that nowadays we have a lot more to draw on that's not what's classically considered hard science fiction or, or you know, rooted in some type of technology or rooted in some type of device. It's much more in the human interrelationships. Right. I mean, a lot of the things that now explore the notion of artificial life, for example, um, will call attention to the difference between the creation of biological life, you know, to humans or humans in laboratory, you know, reproducing another human uh, versus someone sitting down and creating a form of life as in the case of a mechanical human being or a mechanical device that has some degree of sentience to it. Or, you know, as in the case of something like Jurassic Park, where we recreate life that existed on our planet once before. 
you know, where in each of those other cases, we're talking about scientific intervention that creates some sense of a living thing, or at least an animatronic thing that, that has the trappings of life. You know, and it becomes more of a reality play, where in the case of, of, of this, that's not necessarily what's going on. It's really about how the mechanicals, in an odd way, become a reflection of our own motivations, of our own philosophies, of our own things that we might reach for in terms of perfection and, and taking those to a different conclusion than we might have thought they would go to. As you said before, be careful what you wish for. Well, what everybody should be wishing for is another episode of To Be Determined. And by the way, if you think this episode presented some material that takes you on a dark turn, where are we going next, Dan? It's going to be Harlan Ellison talking about one of his most famous short stories, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And if that doesn't make you scared, you should be. We'll see you next time, everybody.